You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about hyperbilirubinemia. Joining me is Dr. Joanna Parga-Belinke, who's an attending neonatologist in the Division of Neonatology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and co-host of Pediatrics on Call, the podcast of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Parga-Belinke. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lockwood. It's such a pleasure to be on with you. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic because I know you not only work in our NICU, but in our Well Baby Nursery, and this is a topic that certainly you deal with every day, and in primary care, something that we think about often as well. Yeah, there's so much crossover, so I'm excited to chat about it with you too. Thank you. So in the September 2022 issue of Pediatrics, we learned about a clinical practice guideline revision for the management of hyperbilirubinemia. The original guidelines were published in 2004. So this is the first major change to clinical practice in both of our careers. So what I'm wondering is why change things now? Did we learn more about hyperbilirubinemia? That's a great question. And it is kind of crazy that the guidelines really haven't been revised that much since 2004. There was that brief commentary in 2009. But again, as you said, this is the first major revision of the guidelines. And, you know, the 2004 guidelines, they did work well. But there has been a lot of new information, and this new update has been eight years in the making to revisit these guidelines. So it's definitely something that's incorporating a lot of new information. I think it helps clarify the management from 2004 and also helps with questions and confusion that were in those guidelines. And now the big takeaway is there are higher thresholds for treatment, so we might be seeing less infants getting phototherapy. So we're excited to see if that's going to be the case with these new guidelines. I think that's potentially a really exciting change about this guideline revision. And so we're going to dig into some of the different things that come up in this revision. One is that jaundice in the first few days of life historically was called breastfeeding jaundice, which sometimes led to cessation of breastfeeding or using formula supplementation. Can you talk about how the new guidelines are shifting away from focusing on breastfeeding, instead thinking about intake in general, and how this may decrease stigma related to breastfeeding as causative? I think this is an excellent question because new lactating parents face so many challenges, particularly here in the United States, and that really affects their ability to breastfeed. And things I'm referring to are lack of parental leave, lack of time and space to pump, when away from the infant, issues with childcare. It's a lot for lactating individuals. So I think it's nice this guideline takes some of that pressure off breastfeeding and normalizes the often slow and steady rise in milk production for lactating parents, especially over the baby's first few days of life. So instead of saying breastfeeding jaundice or breastfeeding failure jaundice, which is what I actually learned in <laughs> residency, I don't know if you were taught oh, no. with that failure kind of like alliteration put in there to help you remember. Mm. Um, but now we're moving away from that. It's called suboptimal 
intake jaundice or hyperbilirubinemia, which I think is better because it describes the relative dehydration these infants may experience when breastfeeding. So this type of jaundice it usually peaks at, at day three to five and is related to inadequate milk intake. And it's not the fault of breastfeeding. But hyperbilirubinemia may be one of the reasons you want to counsel on supplementation, whether it be with formula or donor human milk, just some milk alternative. And there's still breast milk jaundice or breast milk jaundice syndrome, which is this prolonged unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia that can last for months and is non-pathologic that we still see in breastfed infants. Mm -hmm. We don't know the exact cause of that, but again, we don't think it's really harmful to baby. Well, I like anything that decreases stigma around breastfeeding and helps support mothers in those early days when it can be so hard. And so I love the language change in these new guidelines. Oh, me too. Another change in the new guidelines is related to phototherapy treatment, as you mentioned, and it takes into account gestational age and neurotoxicity risk factors. In the primary care setting, some of these risk factors are less helpful, like albumin, which we don't know, and sepsis, which they shouldn't have, and even hemolytic conditions because the newborn screen results aren't back yet. But isoimmune hemolytic disease is something that we can investigate as a possible cause. And particularly for those of us who might work in well-baby nurseries, this is something that we need to know how to interpret. So how do we interpret blood type and RH to determine the risk of isoimmune hemolytic disease? Well, it's just as you said, isoimmune hemolytic disease is such an important cause of jaundice. And we worry about moms sensitized in earlier pregnancies and the risk of their subsequent infants having hyperbilirubinemia, especially when they're RH negative, because the risk of hemolysis is higher in those babies. So that's why we're trying to screen moms in pregnancy to know their blood type. Um, so because so we can give them medications like Rogam, um, because that's something that's really important in helping prevent the sensitization of the mom's immune system and creating antibodies against the baby's red blood cells. And generally, Rogam is given mid-pregnancy, and it can be given again at the time of delivery. So for a lot of babies where the mom is Rh negative, and we know that from prenatal testing, we'll also test the baby to see if they need Rogam even after they deliver. And so again, mothers should be screened in pregnancy. And if they're not, you can get a blood type and screen at the time of delivery, because that might help with your bilirubin management for the baby. And it'll help you know as a, whether you need to test baby, and B, again, whether mom's going to need Rogam after delivery. And we look for DAT positivity in infants to help us understand if we think that maybe there's going to be an issue with hemolysis as well. And what I really like is the current guidelines have a clear algorithm, which help clinicians walk through DAT status as well. So it's figure one in the paper. And I like that they really talk about this isoimmune hemolytic disease because it's really important for baby. And another thing that I wanted to highlight with this new guideline is it's more instructive on testing for other causes of hemolysis as well in infants. And specifically, it's glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase or G6PD deficiency. This is an enzymopathy that is traditionally X-linked recessive and a huge part of why infants get hyperbilirubinemia in the US. So it's hard to know whether they have it because like you said, Katie, there's not testing before delivery. And there's also after delivery, really a lack of point of care testing and not not all newborn screens are looking for G6PD deficiency. But the results on the newborn screen, too, take a while to come back. So it could be after the risk period has passed right after delivery for hyperbilirubinemia. 
But you can send the testing after delivery if you suspect that might be a cause. If you do send it early on, sometimes the testing doesn't really tell you about enzymatic activity, so it does need to be resent at about three months of age. So if that's high on your differential, don't be reassured by you know negative testing early on. It might still be something you need to test for outpatient. But I think this guideline does a good job of highlighting this as another cause of hemolysis. And I wanted to say, you know, you mentioned the neurotoxicity risk factors as well, which is table two in this paper, which are things like you said, albumin levels, sepsis. I mean, any clinical instability, again, you're probably not going to see that baby in the in the GenPeds office necessarily. Isoimmune hemolytic disease. Another thing in that table is gestational age and younger gestational age. But what I like about these neurotoxicity risk factors, too, is it removed race as one of those risk factors. And I think that that's a conscious effort by the AAP to practice more race-conscious medicine instead of race-based medicine. So we know, and and I mentioned this too because we were just talking about G6PD, there is a genetic predisposition to something like that to be aware of. And it's associated with people who are of sub-Saharan African, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, Arabian, and Southeast Asian descent. But we're not focusing on race. We're focusing on genetics, genetic predisposition, and just being conscious of what areas of the world where you might see something like G6PD, which also contributes to hemolysis. I like the point you made about the removal of race as a neurotoxicity risk factor. It was always hard to know what to do with that. Like, is that weighted as much as something like sepsis or low albumin? And so I like that we're thinking, as you said, about genetics. And for me, things like G6PD even though the results might take a little while to come back, sometimes those kids aren't necessarily the ones that are going for phototherapy. I'm not sending them to you in the NICU, but it's sort of like their bilirubin is just hanging a little bit higher for longer than I would like. And so they're just getting more frequent checks. And then when that G6PD result comes back, it clues me in, oh, that's why I'm having this issue with their bilirubin hanging a little higher for longer. And so it's definitely helpful and keep an eye out for it if it is on your newborn screen. It's really important information for you to pass on to the family in terms of their future risk as well. Now, the thing that I always struggle with is visual assessment of jaundice because I was taught that our visual assessment is poor. But how do the new guidelines suggest that we use visual assessment to guide our measurement of bilirubin? I'm laughing a little bit because I actually think your teaching was correct. (laughs) I think kind of in general, Um, (laughs) you know, we are poor at guesstimating what a bilirubin level will be. And so the best way to assess jaundice is really to check in some fashion, whether you're going to use a transcutaneous measurement or you're going to use a serum measurement, which is really the gold standard for really knowing what the bilirubin value is. That said, the new guideline does recommend visually examining for jaundice about every 12 hours when the baby is first born and in the nursery. And then it does recommend checking a level by 24 to 48 hours and checking earlier if you really think the baby looks particularly jaundiced. So, you know, as much as we're bad at estimating, we want to be examining and we can see jaundice. And that is going to maybe prompt when you're going to check your first bilirubin level in the nursery. And if you're going to check it later on when they're discharged and in an outpatient office. So it's a useful tool, the exam. But again, it's not going to you're not going to be able to probably correctly estimate what the bilirubin level is. 
Well, I'm sure the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is happy to hear that my teaching was good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also laughing because I have a picture on my desk of my son when he was born and he is glowing with jaundice. As a parent, though, I couldn't see it because that's all I knew was that that's what he looked like. And it was the neonatologist who said, actually, he looks like he needs a bilirubin checked. But I can tell you as a primary care pediatrician that there are many times when a child looks very jaundiced, and yes, they are, but there are other times when they don't look jaundiced and I'm very surprised by the number. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a great reminder in these guidelines that our visual assessment can be helpful, but it should not be what we rest our management on. Yeah. So in the primary care setting, many practices use a transcutaneous bilirubin measurement because they might not have access to a lab to draw a capillary or venous sample on site. So can we trust these transcutaneous bilirubin measurements? So I think ultimately you you can. They are actually a pretty good estimate of what the serum levels will be, and they're great to use as a screen. And then again, I would use a serum level as your gold standard for treatment, but the transcutaneous measurements might actually save you from drawing the serum, you know, particularly if they are low. And the way that these transcutaneous bilirubin meters work is they actually measure the amount of yellow light that's reflecting from the skin. So actually, generally, they're within three milligrams per deciliter of a serum draw. And values, though, can be altered by the skin melanin content. And so depending on the machine and the manufacturer, you could be over or underestimating. But it's a great screen. And again, it might save you from having to stick the baby to get that bilirubin level. Yeah, so much better than a needle stick if you can spare them that. Mm-hmm. Now, you probably don't hear this much in the NICU, although I do remember how sunny the HUP NICU gets. <laughs> but in primary care, parents often ask us if putting their jaundiced baby in the sunlight will help. So is this a myth or can sun exposure be beneficial? It's true that in one of the NICUs that I work, there are really beautiful windows on the side of it. So you can look out over the city of Philadelphia. But we have not used that for treatment of hyperbilirubinemia. (laughs) But actually, hypothetically, yes. But remember, there are risks to being in the sun Mm -hmm. because you're not targeting either the intensity of light or the wavelength of light that you're going to be using to treat. And the sun can cause things like burns and there's UV light in the sun. So sunlight is this white light. And by a white light, it has many different frequencies of light. And again, you can't really control the intensity of the sun light that you would be using if you were to, say, try to treat a baby with it. But for phototherapy, for actual treatment with lights, we use this blue light or you can even use a green light as well, though I have not really ever seen that in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And essentially what that light does, it helps isomerize the bilirubin to make it easier to excrete in urine. And it makes a fun complex called lumirubin, which I think is really fun because it relates to light as well. But when we're using these lights in the NICU, we are measuring the intensity of the light, or we're measuring the frequency of the light, and sunlight is much more unpredictable, and again, remember, can cause harm, and that's why we don't recommend it. That said, what I really like about these new guidelines is there is a caveat in here for the use of home phototherapy. So, you know, there are LED light machines that are pretty standard in, again, what intensity or frequency of light they're putting out. And for lower risk infants, 
who and what do I mean by lower risk? So for babies who are of older gestational age, they're over 38 weeks, they're over 48 hours old, you're seeing them in the clinic, Katie, they're feeding really well, they don't have neurotoxicity risk factors, which we listed above, they've never had photo. And you know, you're looking now at these new phototherapy curves, and they're no more than one milligram per deciliter over the new curve. If you have readily available one of these home phototherapy devices, you can use that. You would also want to make sure you have a way that you can check the bilirubin levels daily. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as opposed to using sunlight, I think what, what outpatient practices can think about is using these blankets, we call them Billy blankets too, to help keep babies at home. And that might help with things like bonding, with feeding, with stress reduction, because it is really stressful for parents when their babies have to get readmitted for phototherapy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And keeping them out of the hospital is always great when we can. And so I do like that, as you mentioned, for those low risk babies, this is a possible nice alternative. And yes, the sun alone is not enough. Um, Although I always tell families they can take their jaundice baby out for a walk and get some sunshine. But as you and I know, (laughs) it's also about surface area of skin that's exposed. When we do phototherapy, those babies are stripped down. And most of the year, at least in the Northeast where we are, you can't really have your baby undressed outside for very long. And so it's not really a practical um, solution. Yeah, it's not practical and it could be harmful too. So if we know we have a therapy that really works, that's more targeted, it's always better to use that. So after phototherapy, some people will get what we call a rebound billy or a measurement afterwards. And sometimes they'll repeat that multiple times. And this practice has always been pretty controversial. Some like to check it to make sure that the billy doesn't rise after discontinuation of phototherapy. And some use clinical indicators like their visual assessment and measuring things like their alertness or fatigue, their feeding and their stooling as reassurance that the issue is now resolved. So what do the revised guidelines suggest in terms of rebound billy practice? So this, I think, is actually a strength of the guidelines that it does mention rebound bilirubin levels, because I think this led to some confusion with the older guidelines. That said, I worry it might make it a little harder for outpatient pediatricians like you because it does raise the phototherapy threshold. So I think people might be more cautious about checking those higher levels than in the past would have required phototherapy and now won't require phototherapy. I think we still have to see how this plays out clinically and make sure that we're checking these babies with what the guidelines are recommending. So what are they recommending? When should you check a rebound? Now, rebound hyperbilirubinemia is defined as kind of reaching the phototherapy threshold again, somewhere between 72 and 96 hours after you stopped light therapy. And so, you know, presumably these babies have probably gotten phototherapy in the nursery where I work, and those are the babies that are going to be at higher risk of rebounding later. And other things that put babies at higher risk include, again, younger postnatal age, because those are the babies that we're going to be worried about, or younger gestational age. So just, you know, younger your 37, 36-weekers who are still in those first few days of life, hemolytic disease, which we talked about, mm-hmm. and then higher bilirubin level when photo was stopped, that's closer to the threshold, which kind of makes sense, right? right? And remember that when you start phototherapy using the new curves, you're using, you want to stop it when you're too below the light level from where you started. 
Mm. Right. So that's kind of important. And I think that's also something people are watching to see how long kids are needing or babies are going to be needing phototherapy with that being the recommendation. So knowing all of this, the rebound level again, you could check it 12 hours after you stop lights. But ideally, you're going to want to check it closer to 24 hours after phototherapy was discontinued. I think this is going to depend on where you're going to check it and what your resources are. And so it's kind of in that around 24-hour mark that you're really going to want to start looking for rebound hyperbilirubinemia if it exists. And that's good to know because that is the time frame when we're usually seeing them in primary care after they've been discharged. And so it's good for us to ask about phototherapy when they were in the hospital and check that discharge paperwork for notes about that so that we know that we should be looking for edibility at that 24-hour mark. Definitely. So what tools can we use in the outpatient setting to help us navigate the new guidelines and to determine the phototherapy thresholds by age? It's something like we mentioned in the beginning that we're still getting adjusted to. This is the, a big practice change for many of us who are stuck in our old ways. So what can we lean on for some help? So, I mean, I think you can lean on some of the traditional sources that you probably used when you were checking bilirubins in the past. So Tool has actually been updated. And then pediatools.org also has the new guidelines up. So you can start to look at those and the curves should be there in their algorithms. They're also going to be updated in EPIC platforms. So stay tuned for that. That's what we're kind of waiting on actually to implement at HUP is to see the new curves in EPIC because we like using the EMR to help us make those decisions. And there's a lot of, you know, there are other, you know, this podcast, I think, you know, is a pretty good resource now that we've taped it and we're talking about all of these new guidelines, right? The AAP has other podcasts on it. They also have, if you have access to the 2022 conference that was in Anaheim, they have lecture series kind of on looking at hyperbilirubinemia. And there's a lot in print that the AAP has put out to help pediatricians. And I will say like even going to the source document itself to the new clinical guidelines or the or the technical report, really outlines for you about this treatment. And I have read the report several times myself because I'm always learning new information when I read it. So sometimes it's also about going straight back to the source. And I think it's pretty well laid out that there are different tables and figures that'll help with your management. I agree. The tables and the figures in the new guidelines are really clear. And I think if we keep reviewing those, it'll start to stick in our brains too. Now, One thing I hear about in primary care is parents who are worrying about the long-term impact of jaundice. And we know that pediatricians are doing a great job of preventing cernicterus, which has serious long-term outcomes, obviously. But what about the impact of milder forms of hyperbilirubinemia? Do we have to worry that there's any impact on neurodevelopment? Yeah, certainly cernicterus is quite rare. So we're really thankful for that in our pediatric practices. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a really good question, Katie. I don't think we particularly know. I think we hope that it doesn't. And, you know, the babies that we're following up, you know, what the new guidelines put out too is kind of this escalation of care for when you need to not just think about phototherapy, but also think about something that you might do in the NICU with me, an exchange transfusion or use of IVIG. Um, And certainly those babies who had those higher levels that might have required something like an exchange transfusion are going to go to neurodevelopmental follow-up and are going to be followed up more closely because of concerns about their brain development. But I don't think we we really have great data on knowing if milder forms of hyperbilirubinemia cause brain injury, but we don't think that they do. I will say, too, that phototherapy 
decreases the likelihood of an increasing bilirubin concentration. It also decreases the likelihood that you're going to need something like an exchange transfusion. But we're not sure that phototherapy even prevents subtle adverse neurodevelopmental findings um, because the, the literature linking subtle abnormalities with bilirubin is, is really conflicting. Um, and the report kind of comments on this as well. So I think the jury's out. I think we're very good at monitoring it and we're very good at preventing brain injury. And I'm confident that the new guidelines are going to keep kernicterus rare. And I think that the tools that we have used in the past to keep help keep bilirubin levels lower when we're worried um, are still really excellent tools. So, I mean, I, I would kind of reassure families by saying that we do a really good job screening. We screen everyone and we stop those levels from getting to really high toxic levels where we're going to have to really be worried about neurodevelopment. That's great. Now, I am so thankful every day to have neonatologists like yourself taking care of these patients. And hopefully the new guidelines, as you mentioned, can keep some of our patients out of your NICU and hopefully keep them home with their parents. But we are grateful that when they do need to go to the hospital, they have pediatricians like yourself taking care of them. So thank you for teaching us more about these revised guidelines today and teaching pediatricians a little bit more about this change in practice. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Lockwood, for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.